This podcast contains potentially sensitive topics and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. And I know for us, we had people all the time coming up saying, you need to surrender. You need to take your animals to the shelter. They can provide, you know, a better home for them, especially you don't even have one right now. That fear, I mean, it's scary when you know you have nothing and you've got this precious dog that you just love so much and here's some stranger coming up uh, threatening you or accusing you or telling you this is what you need to um, do. The thought of losing one of my dogs like that or all of them I mean, I can't express in words how frightening. Just fear. I was scared all the time that someone was going to come and take them away and say, you know, I was a bad person for having them out there. One of the things that I hear a lot from people living inside is getting upset about people outside having animals, right? Like like somehow they think it's wrong or... What, what, what people... Because that are homeless some, having dogs. Yeah, because somehow That's, they feel like they're not being treated as they should or so. Well, yeah, you know, I used to think that too. You know, I used to think, okay, this person can't even take care of himself. Why does he have an animal? And I think, okay, that was wrong of me because for the fact that they're taking care of them. Because they're the best. Dogs are so cool. I mean, they're there when you're mad and they're there to make you happy. They're... You know, the one thing that I tell people is that, honestly, in all 100% honesty, we see some really ugly shit some days. But for the most part, we see love and compassion. And for some people, the only love that they ever get is with that animal that's sitting at their feet. That's all they have. I'm Rex Holbein, and welcome to You Know Me Now, a podcast conversation that strives to amplify the unheard voices in our community. For the past 12 years, I have met and spent a great deal of time with thousands of folks living homeless. Through those conversations and friendships, I learned how destructive and baseless the dehumanizing effects of the negative stereotype are against ordinary people people who, quite frankly, are just like you and me. In these episodes, I want to remind all of our listeners that the folks who share here do so with a great deal of vulnerability and courage. They share a common hope that by giving all of us a window into their world, they're opening an increased level of awareness, understanding, and connection within our own community. I want to begin with what I think is a truism, and that is, we all have issues. For some, the issues are small and containable, while for others, the issues are big and overwhelming. Truth is, though, we all struggle with something or some things. The problem with the bigger personal issues is that they can spill out into the public eye, out behind closed doors. Those are really tough moments for folks, trying to navigate not just their own feelings, but now also the feelings and judgments of others, people they might not even know. And we all get this. We 
learned from an early age that you don't air your dirty laundry out in public. People and entire families go to great lengths to hide their issues, to make everything look normal. Now, consider what this means for those struggling through homelessness, where every aspect of their personal life is on full display. There are no closed doors to keep issues quiet behind. In this environment, the homeless receive a nearly constant stream of judgment from those that don't know them or their circumstances. They hear, why don't they pick up their garbage? Never mind that there is nowhere to put it. Or, if they can afford a cell phone, why are they begging for money? Never mind that the phone can be their only real connection to family, friends, and services. And how can they take care of a dog when they can't even take care of themselves? This last question is one we want to dive into with all of you. Today we're speaking with Laura Troncoso. She founded the Seattle Dogs Homeless Program here in Seattle and has helped thousands of dogs and cats as well as their owners who are living homeless. Laura is uniquely qualified to offer insight on this topic as she experienced homelessness as a child and then again as an adult with her own dogs. Now being housed, she spends all of her time doing street outreach. She is an extremely thoughtful and knowledgeable person and we're very happy she agreed to speak with us. So I was born in Oakland, California at the Naval Hospital to basically teenage mom and dad. My sister, Lisa, is 13 months older. My mother was 17 when she had her, so 18 with me. My dad was just a tad bit older, and um, he joined the Navy when I uh, found out she got pregnant and they got married. So, And then shortly after I was born, my dad was killed by a drunk driver. He was riding his motorcycle and was killed. We had come from California back up here to Seattle, which is, you know, where my mom and dad were from, and my grandmother was here. We were here for a little bit. I don't have a whole lot of memory of it. Um, and then my mother remarried, and he adopted me and Lisa. Basically, my whole childhood, up until the point when eighth grade, I guess. Um, we lived in a bunch of different states. He was in the oil business, and so we lived in Texas, California, Colorado, Arizona. Laura's early childhood was very comfortable and stable. Her adopted father worked in the oil mining business and made good money, moving the family wherever the company needed his expertise. When Laura described how well off they were, she said they were Kardashian rich. Kardashian rich. We were rich rich. We lived in the best. Like when we moved, our house was built from the ground up. My mother chose every single detail that went into those houses. From the tile to the paint. And, and were you guys rich because your dad was just making that much money? Yeah. He worked hard. You know, he got educated and you know, he worked and earned the position that he was in. Um, I didn't realize at the time growing up how it was. But, um, yeah, we were really rich. But not everything was as it seemed on the surface. 
there were issues. When you look, you know, you walk down the street and you look in windows, and things might look really pretty, but inside it could be something terrible and ugly, and and that's how it was. We had Kardashian money. I mean, we had everything we could want, but he was very abusive. He didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. You know, he worked all the time. But there were just days when his temper would explode, and it was beyond a spanking. Talking about it in public was something you just didn't do. And then I had gone to school, you know, black eye, busted lip, and people would ask, you know, and then I'd have to put on this tough exterior and, Make you something know, up. just got in a fight at the park or something. You know, I kept thinking, he chose us. We went to court. I remember very vividly sitting there and the judge talking to us and saying, you know, he wants to be your dad. Do you want him to be your dad? And so I thought, man, that's pretty cool. Somebody's just really wants us, you know. And we were still really young. But I thought, why does he do that then? You know, why does he... I never saw myself doing something worthy of that, right? Well, there's... The truth is, right, there's nothing a child can do that would be worthy of that. Yeah. Well, and it is strange to me because when he had children with my mother, so my younger brother and sister, um, they weren't treated like that. Not ever. Not once. And I thought, why? You know, to me, there was no difference between, you know, blood and water. You love someone, you love them, and you care for them. You don't, you just don't do that. These memories are still very raw for Laura. Just talking about it brought up emotions that overwhelmed her, even surprised her. She needed to take a moment to continue. Around ninth grade, Laura's mother filed for a divorce and moved back to Seattle where her own mother, Laura's grandmother, lived. She brought us kids, all four of us, up here. Um, My grandmother was here. Um, We came here to Seattle, and boy, shit just got ugly from there. Once again in Seattle, Laura's mom reconnected with a high school boyfriend and remarried almost immediately. It was an emotionally difficult and very disorienting time for both Laura and her sister Lisa. In their own ways of dealing with the built-up trauma, Lisa decided to run away to California, and Laura, at the age of 14, moved out to live on the streets of Seattle. And my mother never did anything to me. She never, like, you know, would talk bad to me. She would never hit me. My mother never, you know, did drugs or alcohol. You know, she didn't, like, ignore me or, you know how some, well, maybe you don't, but some women, they'll get with someone and they just shove their kids to the side and, you know, life's so great with the two of them, no kids, whatever. And and she wasn't ever like that. I kind of felt like she had left Dad for us, for me and Lisa. It's how I kind of... To protect you. 
that's how I felt. Um, and then when she got with the guy, I felt betrayed. I just felt like she did me dirty. And that's when I had gone. Um, well, my sister Lisa had already gone, ran away to California. And I tried being at home, and it just it just didn't work for me. And I don't know why, because like I said, my mother and I were always really close. But I was just still so upset. And I ended up on the streets of Seattle, wandering around. I had a choice. I could be on the streets, or I could go with my mother, who was now with her husband, moving over to Clarkston, Washington, for God's sakes. There's only one stop sign, one tree, and no buses. Wasn't offering you a lot. It's like, what the hell am I going to do with this? So I chose the streets. After a while, Laura's sister Lisa moved back to Seattle. As teenage girls, living on their own, trying to survive, trying to be all grown up, they were very vulnerable. This was the 1980s in Seattle, which had a darker underbelly to it. To get an idea of what Laura's life was like during that time, you can watch the legendary 1980s documentary Streetwise that was filmed amongst the homeless youth in Seattle. So Lisa had come back from California, and she was hanging out on the streets. Um, and so I just naturally would... Hang with them. Yeah, and she'd tell me, go home, go home. I'd be like, I don't have a home. Can't go home nowhere. You know, follow her around, and she just hung out on the block, you know, between 1st and 2nd on Pike Street was the primary location. She um, started working at different places, and I couldn't do that. Some of my friends could, and I just couldn't. And so I thought, when, I mean, what am I going to do? Different places, meaning dance places dance or, places, or, or um, prostitution? A lot of girls did that. Um, and you know what is so sick is I didn't think about it at the time when it's happening, and I've got friend after friend, you know, people that matter to me getting in cars with strangers. And unfortunately, some of them didn't come back. The Green River Killer, we know, got a couple of them. And, you know, other ones were, they just disappeared. Don't know where any of them ended up. It was a hard time knowing what they were doing to survive and just to eat. Or um, a lot of us would get together and get a motel room. And it's so funny to me when I'm thinking under 18 in a hotel. At 16, Laura became pregnant. After all this awful life that I had now chosen, and I'm standing in a phone booth on the corner of, you know, 2nd and Pike, uh, calling my mother, crying, saying, you know, what am I going to do? And and then, so my mother ended up coming to Seattle, and, and then she rented me an apartment. Yeah, she actually went to the landlord and talked to him and 
So they gave me a little studio apartment up there on Summit. And and, and, and did Lisa then crash at your place all the time? or? Well, she was making pretty good money. She was working at a club on First Avenue at the time called The Lusty Lady. She met a gal who had a friend who owned the Hippodrome, which was a concert venue. And so she did concerts with some big stars, um, like Billy Idol and um, Duran Duran, stuff like that. So she did some pretty cool stuff, um, but she always fell back on the streets. So Laura, you're 16, you're pregnant. Are you living alone in this apartment? Well, for a moment, I had a boyfriend. Good Lord. And, and then he just had to go. And, and were you making money? I mean, you don't Well, I had government money at the time because my, dad, my biological father had been in the service. And so there was money for me to live at the time. Yeah. A lot of times people don't understand, but an example is someone, a, a girl that I helped for a long time on the streets, she got a place to live. And she was barely 18 at the time. And every time I turn around, she was back in that damn tent. And I kept, what are you doing? You have an apartment. Why are you out here? Well, it, it's lonely there. And you can only have people come stay every once in a while. And, and I thought, boy, that's the dumbest thing ever. Until I remembered. I did the same thing. You know, I remember doing that exact same thing at yeah. that age. And I've heard that story actually quite a few times. Yeah. And, and it kind of makes sense, right? Like, it may be a dysfunctional community out on the street, but it's still a community. Right. And you go inside, and you're, you're pretty isolated. Yeah. You're, and you've been pulled away from that one community. And it, also a community that might have been the first time that people around you actually were being good to you. Right. And you feel guilt. Because you got housed and they didn't. So you have all of those mixed emotions running around. And, and so I was, you know, back on the streets running around. Laura got involved with drugs. She began using meth and hallucinogens. At one point, a social worker at a drop-in center where Laura occasionally hung out sat her down for a talk. He was looking at me and my belly's growing and... It's like, what are you going to do? You're either going to be out here and be like X, Y, and Z and, you know, have a baby that you can't never have, or you can go home because you actually can go home. And so I was like, okay, you're right. And so you just, you just needed to hear that. Yeah. He loaded all my stuff in a little Volkswagen and drove my ass over to East, sorry, over to East. You, you can swear on this. <laughs> Over to Eastern Washington. To your mom's. To this, yeah, okey-doke town she was living in. And, yeah, and so I ended up... And that's where you had your child? Yeah. And was it a daughter? Is that... Yeah, and I raised her. Laura did not stay long in Eastern Washington. Back in Seattle, she followed her sister into the strip clubs to make better money so she could provide for her daughter. I followed her to the clubs. You know, it's like, Laura, you can make so much money. You only have to work two days a week. You've got a child to take care of, blah, 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 blah. So I did. And I got, it was working up at uh, Honey's. And, you know, some girls did things 
extra, and I did not. I had worked at some of the clubs mm. here and in Oregon. Yeah, dancing. Dancing. Yeah. And the thing was that with a welfare check, it wasn't enough to rent any place. And then working in a club, nobody wanted to rent to us because there's a stigma attached to it. So here I am with this still really a baby, and we need to put food on the table. And so I can say 100% that I was respectful of myself and my body while working, and it wasn't a bad experience. It was way different for me because I was always very shy when it comes to stuff like that. So I was able to... Um, really still hold my head up. I was proud of what I was doing because I was able to put a roof over my child's head, food on the table, clothes on her back, and keep her safe, you know. Um, But the only place I could rent was hotel. And so I'd always find one, you know, like with the kitchen and, and stuff, and that's where we'd have to live because they didn't care what I did, but a lot of apartments did. And how long did you how long did you dance? How long was that? Probably about five years. Oh, a long time. Yeah. At one point, Laura got in trouble with the law and ended up on probation. She recognized that it was time to change course. I remember one day, I was just like, I, I don't want to do this. There's got to be something different for me. I was going to do something mm-hmm. with this whole shit show that I've created in my life. Well, I went from being in trouble to working for Gary Locke. Really? For those of you who might not know, Gary Locke at the time was the King County Executive. He later went on to become the 21st Governor of Washington State and then Secretary of Commerce under President Obama. Laura will tell you it was the dumbest job she ever had. But it was a start, a foot in the door. In no time, she knew her way around the King County Courthouse. And it turns out it was a place she was pretty comfortable with, being around people who were in and out of trouble. She was gaining confidence that she could create a new and different future for herself. Not long after, she heard of an opportunity at the Department of Corrections. She went in for an interview. I ended up going for this interview, and it was my first experience knowing they have panels you know, several people. So they're asking me all these questions, and the one lady's looking at me, nodding. Yeah, yeah, this is great. And then somebody said, have you ever been in trouble? And I said, oh, boy. And he's like, well, have you? And I said, well, I'm currently on supervision. (laughs) And shortly after that, the interview concluded, and they're like, well, we'll get a hold of you. So I walked out of there. My attitude was good. Everything was positive. I was very honest. And I left. And the next day I got a call. And they said, you got the job. Oh, my word. And I said, what? And they said, you've got the job. And I thought, you're kidding. And she says, if we don't hire you and support you through what you've been through, we have no business, you know, doing what we're doing. Nice. And so they gave me a job. And, and what was the job? I was a um, corrections counselor there. Laura worked at the DOC as a corrections counselor for years, 
Following that, she became a youth counselor at the juvenile center working with kids who committed first-degree murder. She had found a calling, and she was proud of it. You could hear it in her voice when she talked about fighting against some of the rules the state was trying to implement on where and how to house convicted juveniles. She put together a report to the governor's office specifically about sentencing guidelines. From there, she went on to work at the juvenile prison at Indian Ridge and later Snohomish County Juvenile Center and their parole office. Yeah, so I ended up um, having a career, and it was like, man, me, me. It's like if you knew the people I knew, you would have thought... Yeah, snowball chance. Yeah, but it worked, and I was just always so proud, and my grandmother, my mother, just proud of me and and then all of a sudden it's like I couldn't work I just was sick all the time and tired just unbelievably tired and I could think what in the hell is going on here and um, then I got um, diagnosed they said I had um, I had hep hep C what they say oh like I was stage one at the time and I was like what this is stupid and so my boyfriend at the time who um, he had had hep C and that's how I had gotten it and I didn't I wasn't aware of it and then he had gone through this um, program uh, interferon had just come out and they were giving shots and you had to give yourself shots in the stomach and so he did that and it got rid of his hep C But for me, the insurance wouldn't pay for it. And they wouldn't pay for it, and they wouldn't pay for it. And so stage one comes and goes, stage two, stage three. So by the time they finally approved it, because it's like like almost $40,000 for 90 pills. That's crazy. Crazy. And so they finally approved it, and I had just been to the doctors, and they told me I was stage four, liver disease. And I was like, what? So what's the point of taking this medication? They said, well, studies have shown that if you take the medication and get rid of the hep C, then um, it will slow the progression of the disease. So I went ahead and I took the medication, And it did get rid of the hep C, but all the damage had already been done. So at the time, right before they said I was stage four, uh, we just ended up losing everything. You know, he had had a good job. And so you guys had a house. But we, yeah, we had a house and um, we we had a car up until like the week prior and it, it had broke down, but um, it, he ended up, because he was with the Iron Workers Union, and he ended up getting hurt. And he wasn't able to, um, he was getting some money, but it wasn't like matching the paychecks and stuff. And we fell too far behind. And all of a sudden, one day we were homeless. Wow. You were homeless. Homeless. Yeah. As a Cause, grandmother. Because they repossessed, they took the house. They took the house, they took everything. You were. We, in Everett, is that where you said you were? In Everett, with and, four dogs. And what did you do? 
Did you go to a shelter or? No shelter would take us because they didn't take dogs. Oh yeah, that's coming up in our conversation. Yeah, <laughs> so we ended up sleeping in a carport first night. I remember it was so cold. It was this time of the year and we had had like the first snow and it was so cold outside. And I remember he got into a motel room or not, not the room, but like the laundry and he got us a blanket and from the hotel and just snuck in and got it yeah and boy i was grateful yeah <laughs> i tell you but that was just a punch in the gut it's like how do we move on what do we do how can we possibly do anything and where do you go from there it just spiraled even deeper because there was no money. There was nothing to fall back on. It was, everything was done. It's like. He was injured, you. Sick. You were sick. And, and you had no savings. We, it, it was all gone. And what are we going to do? And so Everett is not, um, was not very welcoming at the time for people like us that were homeless. They were and struggling. So we came to Seattle and. It wasn't like when I was a kid. This was a whole different world and a different ball game, and we didn't have the homeless issue that we have now. So this was this was roughly eight nine years ago. This happened. Yeah, yeah. And that's a that's right about when the issue started to start to really get worse. The issue of homelessness. Yeah. I mean, it really was pretty quiet it in was, the city up, right. up until the early teens of 2000. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't, you saw people that were homeless, but you didn't. They weren't everywhere. No. You, it's like here or there. And so we really felt like we stuck out like a sore thumb. And, you know, we had four dogs, one of them being a Newfoundland. And, you know, so then we really stuck out and, you know, we just couldn't catch a break and there wasn't any place that we could turn. So you you said your car had broken down, so you didn't, you didn't even have a vehicle. You didn't even have a car. So where were you living when you were in Seattle? In a tent, wherever we could. Laura and her partner finally got a lucky break. They connected with an old friend that was living at the time in a duplex. He was living in a duplex. And then they said, um, oh, you know, the place downstairs is empty it's for rent. We did meet the landlord. We were able to you know, work out a deal with him and move in. And then all of a sudden, oh my God, talk about bad luck. All of a sudden, we're there and the utilities got shut off. And I was like, what in the world is going on? So then I called the uh, city and they said, oh, they, um, whoever owns that property has not paid the utilities and and the home is in foreclosure and i thought what the hell is this all about and so i called him of course he wasn't going to turn anything back on laura managed to get some help some legal help to force the landlord to turn on the utilities the landlord was trying to weasel out and he was trying to tell him that we didn't rent that and he says, Lord, do you have anything, anything with this man's handwriting on it that shows, like, how much you paid or how much you owe? 
And I said, I do have that because he wouldn't give us a lease. But I did have that. And so he told the guy, well, he really told the guy. And then he made him turn all the utilities and stuff back on. Um, But the house had been foreclosed on. And um, so we were able to get um, help. They have some type of program. If somebody... If the house went into foreclosure, oh, and, yeah, 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 and you were renting, that right, like to no fault of your own, you were being kicked out of. Yes, the place. because it taken so literally a year had gone by when that happened, and we were finally in a place, yeah. and we could have our dogs there to make the monthly rent. Laura got help from her mother and grandmother, and some from her partner, who was able to take on side jobs. The guy, he ended up not charging too much, probably because the place was in foreclosure, but um, I think we were paying like $900 a month. But you were making it work. But we made it work. And my grandmother, she helped. My mother helped. It's like, okay, once you have a roof overhead, then you can really start putting things together. Start making plans. Yeah. And I still didn't know how I was going to do anything, but... At least there was some money coming in. And then all of a sudden we were homeless again with that foreclosure. And we were back out on the streets because even though we had the money, we still had four dogs. So nobody wanted to rent to us for that. And we'd already lost everything. So our credit wasn't that great. And then finally, one day, I don't know what the heck I was doing, but we used to take our dogs over to the Belltown Park. And I was looking at that hotel right there on the corner. and Boy, it looked like it was, you know, the Four Seasons. It was just beautiful and big and expensive looking. But I went in and I talked to a lady that was working. And she says, well, you know, we take dogs on our first floor. We've got like five units. And we'll have one coming up next week. And I was like, okay, we can... We can figure this out. And so we ended up finally getting into a place. And, you know, it's small, and all you get is a little cook plate, but they accepted our dogs. And then every month when I'd give her the money, she would give me back $100 to go and buy pet food. Oh. Yeah. That's beautiful. We we ended up living there for a year. And, and how long was it that you were outside when you got booted out of the house before you found this place? So probably, so the first time it was a year, and then the second time, after we got into that place and got out, it was six months at least, and then we were finally, finally. Back inside. and Back inside. And how long did you stay there? A year. After a year at that apartment, Laura and her partner found a cheaper place at a motel on Aurora Avenue. It would turn out, though, that they were there for only a short while. In the room next to theirs, a husband killed his wife and then himself. By the time it was discovered, the odor had permeated into their own room and all of their belongings. They grabbed some clothes, a blanket, their four dogs, and walked out the door. The frantic search was back on to find a roof over their heads. Finally, 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 I ended up getting a place right off Aurora, and we, ha- we had our dogs who by now were all getting old, but that's where everything finally came together for me 
I was like, I know what it's like to be homeless. And I know what the need is out there. Because I'd, one, been out here with my animals, so I knew everything, the stigma, the struggle, things that people say and do to an animal owner. And I knew what it was like to need food. I knew what it was like to split that hamburger with my dogs. And so uh, I didn't have barely any money at all, but I would go buy one bag of pet food. And half the time I'd beg and beg for a Metro driver to drive me downtown. Um, But I'd ride downtown and I'd quickly find someone that needed a bag of food. and, And then it just snowballed from there. Wow. With her housing stable, Laura found a new calling. Her own journey had opened her up to the struggle of pet owners living homeless. She knew it intimately, and she was going to do something about it. With her modest resources, she began to deliver food and supplies to folks with pets living on the street. As we were able to kind of put a little bit more money aside, and by that, I'm talking just a few dollars. I didn't have much, but I felt like I had a lot. Anyhow, I'd grab, you know, maybe the next month I'd be able to do two bags a week instead of just one. And and then I'd say, ah, oh, there's an old dog and it can't eat dry food, so I need some meat. Ah, oh, it needs a treat. Ah, oh, it really should have a toy. I think it needs a blanket, <laughs> you know, so... One thing leads to another. <laughs> and it... It yes, it went crazy. I thought, boy, I'm, this is great. It made me feel whole. You know what I mean? Like, I love being a mother, being a grandmother, but I was always missing something. And, of course, I liked what I did when I was working, but to be able to do that was great. In 2015, Laura received a small inheritance from her adopted father. She bought a car, paid bills, and the rent for a whole year. She also had an agreement with a veterinary clinic, the Greenwood Animal Hospital, where she sent people to get emergency help with their pets. She was able to get that account paid up as well. And last but not least, she rented a storage unit and started to fill it up with dog food and supplies. I'm just filling it up with everything that I need. You know, because that's what we dealt with was dogs. There wasn't anything else that we were seeing out there. But, yeah, I did all that for a year. Stuff was full. Life was great. And then I ran out of money. And I was like, I'm done. I have not even became this 501c3 that people talk about. And I didn't think that it was really important, you know. But then all of a sudden, there's no money. And... This sucks, you know, just sucks really bad. And and let me guess why it sucks. Because you've probably also made friendships and connections Yes. with people outside. And yeah. they've come probably in a way to depend on you. Right. And now you are out of money. Yeah. And what am I going to do? At this point, Laura came to the realization that she needed to turn her efforts into a 501c3 nonprofit. Problem was... She had no idea how to do it. And I thought, God, I can figure out, I can figure out an offender score. I can figure out what the RCWs are, but I can't figure this shit out for nothing. So I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I was talking to a lady I had met on Facebook, and she said, 
you need to come on Facebook and tell people what you need. And I was like, people don't care. She's like, you need to tell your story. And I was like, seriously, I know what it's like out there. And people do not give a shit about people that are homeless having, you know, animals. And she said, well, that might be true. But people do care about animals. And importantly, they do care about you. So people will help. And I thought, this bitch is crazy. Nobody's going to help me. And so I finally sucked it up and I put out a post and I was like, son of a bitch, people actually helped. And I was like, okay, this can work. And then I met this lady out in Federal Way. She runs Puget Sound Pet Food Bank is what it's called. And, oh, my gosh, this woman, she just inspired me, and I fell in love with her. And we talked a lot, and she says, I'm going to help you become a 501c3 and I was like I don't know what to do and she's like I'm going to help you where nobody else would for her to tell me that not only was she going to help me do it but she was going to help me do the paperwork and I was like oh my gosh so I did and then it got accepted and I thought oh my god now what off to the races here we go yeah so Laura, explain what it is you do. So we do street outreach. So we go out and do the pet food supplies. Um, We provide that access to our vets for emergency vet care, which is, you know, any emergency that is going on with your um, animal. Meaning if one of the folks that you know that's living outside has a pet and their pet has some emergency, some medical emergency, they can contact you and you will authorize them to see our vet and your vet will they charge for that or they do yeah and um they give us a nice discount i see um but it and we're allowed a running tab but um it still at the end of the day has to be paid and but primarily funds to come yeah um so pretty much 90 percent is um all donor based there's just no grants or we haven't received we have received some grants but we haven't received large enough grants to cover these things so I just hope and pray a lot because it saves lives and not just the animals but the persons too and so vet care is really important and then um, we do uh, boarding so that if an owner who's homeless wants to go to drug treatment alcohol treatment they want to start work or they end up having to go to the hospital, um, then we're able to board their dogs for them um, so that they can be reunited. I have heard so many people on the street that won't go into treatment because they're afraid that they'll lose their pet. Yeah. And and that's more important to them in that moment. Yes. And I know what it's like to be in that position and needing the help, needing someone to watch your animals but so afraid that you know you're going to come back tomorrow and they're not going to be there you know for whatever reason they'll be gone and so it's important to me that whoever we deal with there's a trust there's also a contract that lets them know that you know you do what you're what you say you're going to do 
and we'll do what we say we're going to do. And by that, we have had people that go to treatment and they leave after a few days and that's okay. They tried and it's their journey. And as long as they're able to sustain um, the emotional and physical uh, relationship with their animal, we're cool with it. But we, we want them to succeed. Yep. And being able to see that. That's the good stuff. I, I have, uh, my wife and I have had a number of dogs stay at our house, right? Yeah. In a very similar situation you're talking about. And uh, several times I've had uh, the individual just before, right, I leave with the dog. They look at me just with everything they have and say, you're going you're gonna to let me have my dog back, right? Yeah. And they're so afraid right. that, you know, that might, I might be someone that would just get to know their dog, love their dog, and when it comes time to give them back, that I wouldn't. Right. Right. It's such a fear. And, and yeah. to be able to do it through an organization like yours, like yours I'm sure that helps that trust uh, happen yeah. much more easily. And, you know, we are, um, like we um, do supplies and food for the kennel, but that kennel space is donated to us. And so w- would we and do we prefer foster homes? Yes, but they're difficult to get. Um, we do keep uh, separation between, um, so like if you were fostering, I have a relationship with you, but you don't have the relationship with that person um, because we found that that works best for the time that we're dealing with. It doesn't mean it will always be that way, but um, it works. And so we rather animals be in a home than in a kennel, but... Still an answer. To have that available to us, poof. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. <clears throat> Can you tell me a little bit now about um, some of the stigma around people that are homeless owning pets? Like, you know, and, and I could list those off too, but I really want to hear you talk about it. And, and then maybe we can talk about, you know, the myth of, of you know, what people are seeing and and hearing and feeling about those that are owning pets that are homeless? You know, because I dealt with it firsthand, I know what my experience was. If you're out panhandling and you've got your animal, your dog with you, there's somebody, and now with social media, you're screwed because people take those images and they'll be like, that person is out there panhandling with that dog and all they want is money for drugs or, you know, alcohol, whatever, and the dog's in danger, and, you know, somebody, it's usually not the person posting, but somebody needs to go and save this animal. You know, the animal's being physically abused is what the um, the thought is, even though, thank you, that's the word, even though they've never uh, seen sign of that. And I know for us, we had people all the time coming up saying, you need to surrender. You need to take your animals to the shelter. They can provide, you know, a better home for them, especially you don't even have one right now. That fear, I mean, it's scary when you know you have nothing and you've got this precious dog that you just love so much and here's some stranger coming up threatening you or accusing you or telling you 
this is what you need to um, do. The thought of losing one of my dogs like that or all of them, I mean, I can't express in words how frightening. Just fear. I was scared all the time that someone was going to come and take him away and say, you know, I was a bad person for having them out there. So everybody's constantly looking in on your life and deciding what it's like at that moment and that you're not the type of person that deserves an animal. It's It just seems so hurtful, too, when that animal is, like, so dear and important to you and, and then you're being told that you're not doing a good job. Right. And it's like I'm... I'm doing the best I can. For me, it was like, it's not about money. You know, you I mean, you need the money, like, to buy the pet food and stuff like that. But it's more than that. It's a relationship. It's, I can tell you everything about each one of them and their own, you know, personalities. And have I even had a dog that actually thinks it's a dog? I mean, these they're like people, you know, and kind of like talk shit to me once in a while. It's like, y'all need to stop, you know. They have personalities. And when you have a dog or a cat, you have a relationship with them. And if you don't, frankly, you shouldn't have them. And, and how important was that to you outside for you when you were homeless? Like, like what did that mean if you didn't have those animals what would have have been a different experience? It for would you? have been. I I can tell you if somebody would have taken them or if I would have lost them, I would have snowballed so far into despair and destruction. It wouldn't have even uh, been but a glimmer of hope that I made it out because they were everything to me. It allowed me to keep pushing forward and kept trying, you know, just trying to do better, trying to stay focused, trying to stay clean and sober, trying to make it better for them and in the end for me. But I can imagine not having them. You know, the one thing that I tell people is that Honestly, in all 100% honesty, we see some really ugly shit some days. But for the most part, we see love and compassion. And for some people, the only love that they ever get is with that animal that's sitting at their feet. That's all they have. This is your partner. This is your child. This is your best friend. This is the person that never judges you, that loves you unconditionally. I've heard that so many times, uh, the words, my best friend. Yeah. When when talking about their animal, their pet, their dog, typically, when they're on the street. You know, it's my best friend. Yeah. Yeah. And some people go, oh, that's bullshit. But wait a minute. You're on Facebook, and you just did a post saying, look, me and my best friend just went hiking. But that person isn't allowed to have a best friend because they're homeless. Laura has helped countless people with pets living on the streets. 
I asked her if I could talk with a few of them to hear their perspective. I just want to thank her, you know, for always being there. She's a good woman. Please meet Melissa. She lives in an RV in the Beacon Hill neighborhood. She has two dogs and a cat and lives as a single woman by choice. Melissa grew up in Moses Lake, Washington, in an abusive household. Most of the relationships in her life have had a strong domestic violence side to them. Melissa also got involved with drugs and has spent time in jail. She's had a tough life, which is taking a turn for the better. She's been drug-free now for five years, which we did a spontaneous high-five over. I asked her what her animals mean to her. Have you always been a dog lover? Always. I've always, I don't remember ever a time in my life not having a dog. Um, my, my grandparents had dogs. My mom had dogs. And uh, these dogs, though, they've, they've saved my life. You know, there's, there's been a couple times where I just really wanted to kill myself. And, um, and then I think, no, I can't because who's going to take care of my dogs? You know, I mean, nobody can take care of them like me. I just, I love my dog. I mean, I've, I've had her, she's, she's six and a half. I've had her for, since she was born. I, I picked her out the day she was born. So how did you first meet Laura? Um, fat girl got really sick. Um, she was, every time she would urinate, there was massive amounts of blood. And um, I was just, I didn't have, I wasn't working. I was living in a shed and and uh, I didn't know what to do. And so I would started looking on all these different websites and, and trying to find help. I found Laura's, I think it was Laura's website, and um, I called her and, and explained to her what was going on, and she immediately, she, you know, we took her, she let them let me take her into the hut, to the vet to see what, what was wrong, and and um, she had formed crystals on her bladder, and the way the vet described it is they're like actual crystals, so as they're going down the bladder wall, they're cutting it. That's oh. that's why all the blood. Why are dogs or cats so important to people that are homeless? For people that are homeless on the streets or in RVs like you are, what, why is um, it so important to have an animal? Companionship and, and, and sometimes, you know, security. Like, you know, she scares a lot of people off. You know, I mean, there's situations where I felt like I was kind of in a really scary situation. And, and, but then when they see my big dog, you know, then they back up and they're like, oh, whoa, you know. So... Especially being a woman. Especially being a woman, yes. And and they're, you're, they're, she's my best friend. She loves me regardless. Even if I yell at her five minutes later, she's already forgotten about it and love, you know, loves me and no matter what. What do you say to people that, that might say, and there are those out there that do say this, I'm sure you're aware of it, but that say, well, that person can barely take care of themselves. They shouldn't have an animal. I'm sure they're not taking care of that animal. What, what would you say to that person? These these are like my children, you know. What I mean, and 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 they're probably, you know. I mean, I know they're probably right. You know, I probably don't need to have an animal because I can barely take care of myself. But you know, she's there for protection. She's there. For, I talk to her. I you know, I cry on her shoulder. I when I'm sick, she licks me on my face and you know helps me feel better. And but do you do you feel that you do take good care of them? I do. I do. I, 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 they eat before I do. I mean, I make sure they, they have food before I do. To those people that, you know, I mean, cause I, I do get it a lot, you know, I mean, well, you can't even afford to feed yourself and blah, blah, blah. Why, why would you have an animal? And, well, I mean, when I got her, I wasn't homeless and, and I, you know, kind of somewhat had a life, had a life and,
and but I wouldn't give her up for the world. Yeah, and like you said, you feed your animals before you feed yourself. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that that kind of protection is kind of like the mama bear? Like you 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 see them as as your kids, and you mm -hmm. take care of them in the same way. Yeah, yeah, I sure do. Uh, I love her very much, and for the fact that how much she's taking care of my dogs and me, because if she's taking care of my dogs, she's taking care of me, because my dogs take care of me, and they wouldn't be around, and it's because of her that my dogs are, are still with me. Please meet Ken. He lives in a small 60s trailer parked in the Soto neighborhood alongside some semi-trucks, one of which he keeps an eye on for the owner. Ken grew up in Seattle, and he has struggled with alcohol since he was eight years old. He'll tell you openly that pretty much all of his troubles have stemmed from his alcoholism. He managed to keep employment most of his life, but a host of mental health issues surfaced 12 years ago after he quit drinking. Alcohol had been his coping mechanism. Since then, He's had trouble getting the needed services and struggles to just get by. I asked Ken about Laura and what she means to him and his dogs. When did you meet uh, Laura? I was about seven years ago through you. You gave me, because I asked, I guess we we're talking about the dogs and about the food. You know, it's, it's hard to, uh, it's getting hard to feed them. And he said, hey, I know this lady from Seattle Dogs. And she helps people with animals. So I said, okay. Yeah, I didn't remember, actually, that, that, that I it, had introduced her. You did. You. So you gave me her number, and I never called her. And because, you know, I was doing okay with the food, you know, getting them. And, and then I had a friend that went to her. He met her, and he told me, then he told me about her. Yeah, now you heard it twice. Yeah, and at that time I said, oh, cool, okay. That time I really needed it. And so I, he gave me her number, and I called her up. She came right down with dog food, and she says, anything else you need for them? So she gave me, like, leashes. She gave me uh, uh, chew toys for them, a uh, bunch of treats, you know. I mean, she gave me the, the kibble and the uh, uh, soft food. And that's, that's just her, the way she does it. If you need her and you can't make it to where she's at, she'll come to you. She's been taking care of my dogs. Yeah. I mean, she's like the, the silent partner with helping me feed my dogs. If something happens, take them to the vet. Yeah. She does all of that. And, and, and then she gets online and she gets... she. You know, she does a lot She's trying to tireless. get online. Yeah, and, and then she gets people to donate, you know, to help her donate. But it's it's not a whole lot of people, but, you know, the donation, it goes to her. She's like a non-profit. She don't get no money. And then she, a lot of times she pays out of her pocket. I believe dogs are better than people. Because they got this love for you that's unconventional. Yeah. When, when I was little, if I would accidentally hurt my dog, like one time I was coming inside and I, I shut the door, but I shut it on my dog's tail. And he screamed, and I sat there and cried. Because those dogs are awesome. I mean, they're just, they're the best things for you. They're my, um, uh, 
what do they call that? An emotional support. Emotional support. That's what I was looking for. Yep, the emotional support, and it's so awesome because they're the ones keeping me going. They're the ones keeping me alive. One of the things that I hear a lot from people living inside is they get all up in their emotions about getting upset about people outside having animals, right? Like, like somehow they think it's um, wrong or what with what, people. What, because that are homeless some, having dogs? Yeah, because somehow that's, they feel like they're not being treated as they should or so. Can you yeah. can you talk about that? What, well, yeah, you know, I used to think that too. But then it's, you know, I used to think, okay, this person can't even take care of himself. Why does he have an animal? You know, he should not be able to take good care of that animal because he can't take care of himself. And I think, okay, that was wrong of me because for the fact that they're... They're taking care of them as much as they are, are the, you know, the owner, the master is taking care of them because they're the best. Dogs are so cool. I mean, they're there when you're mad and they're there to make you happy. They're, yeah. Yeah. And do you think it's true that people, for the most part, that are outside with dogs do a good job of caring for them because of the love they have for them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's where Lori comes in, too, because she's there for the part that that person can't take care of. I mean, the, the homeless really can't take your dog to the vet. Uh, sometimes they can't get the food for them. She's there to help them with that. I mean, she's a godsend out here. Yeah, what are all the things that, that she's helped you guys with, your dogs and you? Oh, uh, the vet? I, I had a dog... His name was Axel. He had this big tumor on top of his head. And she goes, hey, can take him to the vet. I'll, I'll, send, in, I'll send in the referral saying it's okay. And we'll take care of the uh, Seattle dogs. will take care of the bill. And I just, what? I kind of, oh, okay. It kind of freaked me out. And so I was kind of unsure. But I went up there and sure enough, it happened. And she's. She's been taking care of people. She tells people to go there, and she takes care of the bill. And then, if you know, if people can throw in some, you know, some money and stuff, they do that. But a lot of times they can't. And she, she goes. She, she makes it happen. She makes it happen. Yeah, I am so grateful for that lady. Yeah, I appreciate her a lot for what time that I'm gonna be spending with her, and I always think about her no matter what happens. Anything I can help her with, I do it. I mean, she had to move storages, and so I was there to help her, along with uh, you know a few other people. Yeah. I wish I could do more, but I I can't. Yeah, you're you're scraping to make things work yeah. month to month yourself. Yeah. For those that see themselves as animal lovers, for many there is an immediate negative reaction when seeing folks living on the streets with their pet. This is especially so when drugs are involved. I asked Laura her thoughts on the part animals play for those addicted to drugs. Well, we do see a lot of drug addiction, sadly, and we're dealing with that and trying to uh, reach as many people as we can. We know that there are people that are drug addicted or alcohol addicted, but they're still able to have a relationship with their animal and 
feel and receive love. If you took away that animal just because someone is using drugs, you're making the wrong choice because they're not going to want to get better. They're not going to feel like they're worthy of getting better because you just took away the only thing that actually keeps them going. It's not the needle and spoon. It's that animal it's that's love. there, the love. And yeah. a lot of people don't understand that. And and I try to tell people as well that being involved with rescue, I sadly see it even more so. But majority of our cases for abuse come from people that are housed. I, I was just going to actually want you to talk about that. I'm glad you brought it up. That the people I've met outside that have had pets, I see a relationship that is tighter than typically I see with owners that are housed. And and that's not to say that there aren't amazing homeowners that just have these beautiful relationships with their dogs. But I what I do see a lot of is dogs in the backyard in a chain link fence. Owner goes off to work, has gone 10 hours, comes back, has has a few hours, and then goes to sleep and repeats the process versus people that are outside are with their animals 24-7. And I think about the emotional psychology of that and where would the dog rather be. Exactly. And it's sad because people, not all people, but some people want to be so quick to judge the person who doesn't have the curtains to close, but then their neighbor who's been you know, chaining the dog outside with no shelter and no, you know, water and stuff. They've sat there and watched that shit go on for years and done nothing until somebody else posted about it. Yeah, that's the negative stereotype against homelessness. Yeah, and it happens a lot. What would you say to a, to a person that was sitting here with us uh, or listening to this podcast that, that loves dogs, loves animals, um, but is really bothered when they see a dog you know next to somebody that's that's flying a sign or outside of a tent or you know what, what would you say to them what what how would you appeal to to the feelings that they're having in that moment well i think first for me is you know stop and talk to him ask are you gonna come across somebody who's an ass to you sure but you come across that in everyday life. So why not take a chance? Keep, you know, keep your distance because you never know what a dog is like when they're out there, but you know, stop and find out. Don't just take a picture and, and post and send the world crashing at their feet because you're causing us Seattle dogs issues. And you're causing the person issues when it might not be what you're imagining in your mind. Yeah, and you haven't done anything to better the situation. Right. I, th- I think you're amazing. I, oh, I I've, love you. Thank I you so just, much. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm just amazed that, about your life journey and how you just, I, I don't know how you can push through all that and then come out the other side and be doing this amazing selfless work. And you're also, can I say this? You're not, uh, I'm not you're, rich. You're not getting rich doing this. Yeah. You're, you're, you're 
you're living month to month. Yes. And I'm poor. You're poor. <laughs> I actually had a lady that runs a very, uh, well, she's since passed, but a very successful rescue. And she was talking to me one day, and she's like, what the hell are you doing? And I was like, what? And she's like, what the hell are you doing? You don't, you're helping people, homeless people. You're helping their animals. You're doing all this stuff. You're poor. And I was like, I know. You don't have to be yelling at me that I'm poor. And she's like, but you're poor. Why are you helping people? You need to keep that for yourself. And I said, you know, reality is I don't know what day I'm going to pass away. But I do know that I'm literally living while dying. And this keeps me going. It's like... Uh, and you are, you are really loved by people on the streets. I do have some great <laughs> you, you people. You <laughs> do have some people that love you very much. Yeah. Some of them kind of keep me or I keep them. And, you know, I'm, I'm blessed. I am blessed. I am poor, but I am <laughs> I'm blessed. And You've created those blessings, I will say. Thank you. You really have. It is pretty crazy when, when I list it all, you know, this is what we do. And it all literally started with one bag of Purina pet food that was not even five pounds because I couldn't afford more than that. But when I look at what I do and then not having, you know, this big umbrella of cash <laughs> above me that's mm. man that's pretty effing mm. cool yeah i need the help they need the help you know if we don't help each other what are we doing you know can't walk through life being a selfish asshole you know i had everything right beautiful home beautiful things and i worked hard to get everything and then it was gone our life amounts to in the end is that, you know, we really, we can't take anything with us when we go. You know what I mean? Yeah, but we're, but when we go, you know, all that stuff that we accumulated is just sitting on the shelves. But the lives of the people that we've gotten close to, those are sitting inside of us. Yeah. They, they, I do think we take those with us. You know, helping people even just a little bit is good, yeah. you know. A pebble of dog food can build a bridge, man. I asked Laura what is next for her as she continues to do her important and loved street outreach. Um, I have stage four cirrhosis of the liver, and I'm terminal. For that? For that, terminal. And so every six months, I go, I have to go to the doctors. They monitor it, and then they watch for any type of cancer popping up in there. They won't um, put me on a liver transplant because I don't have any money. That's what it all boils down to is money. Always. The medication that could have saved my life originally was denied. Stage four, they're like, oh, here you go. Yeah. You can have it. A Seattle judge ruled that nobody could ever be denied that medication again. Um, but it didn't help me. Even if we could find a donor, they won't, they won't pay for it. Wow. And I just don't understand. Oh. My dream's not finished, so I don't want to. 
I don't want to die, so I just, I look in the mirror and some days I see it. I just, I'm not done. I'm not done. Yeah, that's clear. So I just, yeah. I have a plan for Seattle Dogs and I'm not done. If you would like to help Laura with her mission, the most immediate need is to help pay down what is owed to the Greenwood Animal Hospital. Best is to contact them directly, letting them know you would like to pay towards Seattle Dogs' outstanding bill. We've included contact info to the hospital as well as Laura's nonprofit organization on our website. I can never rest. I just want to be the best. People used to doubt me. Now they're envious of my success. Started with a dream. Everything that I created. A legend in the making. Really, there ain't no debating. You Know Me Now is produced, written, and edited by Tomas Bernatsky and me, Rex Holbein. We would like to thank Laura, Melissa, and Ken for taking the time to speak with us. You Know Me Now has a Facebook and Instagram page where you can join in on the conversation. We also have a website at www.youknowmenow.com where you can see photos of the dogs that Laura helps as well as their human companions. We also have stories of other folks we feel you should get to know. Thanks as always for listening.